This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. This Sunday marks 15 years since the terrorist attacks on 9-11. Today we're going to hear two personal stories of people affected by the tragedy. Coming up, we'll talk to a Connecticut mother who lost her son. He worked in the second tower at the World Trade Center. But first, we hear the story of Bangladeshi immigrant Race Buyan. He wasn't in New York City that day. He lived thousands of miles away in Dallas. Anti-Muslim sentiment fueled by the terrorist attacks would change his life forever. Race, welcome to where we live. Lucy, thank you for having me. So tell me, you're, you were an immigrant to the United States right before 9-11. Uh, what country um, were you born and why did you come here? I was born in Bangladesh in the capital city, uh, Dhaka. As a child, I had a dream uh, either to be an Air Force pilot and also uh, to come to U.S. for higher education. After graduating as a pilot officer from Bangladesh Air Force Academy, I did not feel my destiny was there. And when I got a chance to come to USA for additional higher education, I took it and I left my family, my fiance, my siblings back home and uh, came to USA for additional higher education 17 years back. And your your journey to Texas uh, was not direct, right? So where did you go first and how did you end up in Texas? Well, first I came to New York City, loved it very much, uh, different culture, different people, a lot of new things, um, a lot of learning curve. But then after a couple of, after a year and a half, one of my senior friends from the same military school that I attended back home invited me to visit Dallas. And I was very excited uh, because I grew up watching a lot of Western movies, Wild Wild West. And uh, when I got the invitation, I was very excited. And I said, wow, finally I'll be able to see uh, cowboys, cowgirls, uh, the horse uh, ranch, and the pubs with the swinging door. I was very excited to visit, and I did twice. Uh, I went to Dallas, loved it very much. Weather is like back home. Everything was great, and tuition fee was much cheaper. And at some point, uh, I decided uh, to move to Texas with lots of hopes and dreams. And you found out that Texas was a lot different, Dallas, that is, from the wild, wild west. Well, Texas is like a country within a country. Uh, you know, what, we, what I experienced in New York City, it was totally different in, in Texas. Uh, but m- that time my focus was lower tuition fee and a much more affordable lifestyle. New York was pretty expensive for me. So everything was very attractive from a student perspective. And you came here to pursue the American dream. That's true. Uh, For additional higher education and to experience the American dream, uh, that's why I left my country and came to USA. So what was your first job when you were in Dallas? Well, my friend, uh, he and his brother uh, were in gas station business. And uh, so he invited me that uh, by saying that if I move to Dallas, not only I will get the opportunity to, to go to college, pay a lower tuition fee, but also he will offer me um, as a working partner partnership uh, in his business. So that was a lucrative proposal that you are going to college. At the same time, you are a working partner of a small business. So he and I, we started a gas station in uh, southeast Dallas uh, in Texas. And it was a great experience because uh, being a Air Force officer, you never get a chance to 
to uh, work in a gas station, serve three tamales for one dollar, or selling candy uh, for thirty-five cents. So I was I was pretty much enjoying that experience, and I loved it. That gave me an opportunity to get to know a lot of people from different socioeconomic status, rich, poor. Everybody goes to gas station to buy gas. It was it was a great experience uh, to work in a gas station and learned a lot. Was it a culture shock for you to be moving to Texas um, after you know growing up and living uh, much of your life as a you know in South Asia? Well, of course, it was a, a great cultural uh, change, social cultural in in. Every aspect it was a great change. Um, for example, uh, even when I uh, first landed in uh, Los Angeles airport, uh, my father gave me all $100 bills. And I had to make a phone call. And I didn't have any change. So I went to a store and I asked for, for some quarter. And the clerk, behind, clerk in that store uh, told me, oh, this is a $100 bill. And bill means electric bill, phone bill. That's what I learned back home. And I told him that I did not buy anything from your store. Why you are saying there is a bill? And he said, no, it's a hundred dollar bill. I said, but sir, I did not buy anything from your store. Why you are telling me it's a bill? So I thought maybe he was trying to rip me off. So I went to the next store. Same thing happened. So in the, on the third store, I found um, a South Asian girl and I thought, uh, now I will get help. It looks like somebody from my culture. So she helped me to make the phone call, and that's how I started my first day in the U.S. And when I w- went to Texas, definitely it was way more different than what I experienced in L.A. airport or in New York City in, in every aspect. This was just a few months before 9-11-2001? Right. I moved to Texas uh, May 2001, just a few months before 9-11. You're practicing Muslim. When the terrorist attacks happened, how did you feel? Well, first of all, I could not believe that it actually happened. When I saw the, the news clip first thing in the morning, matter of fact, I was off on that day. I did not go to work. And when I saw it, I thought it's some sort of you know upcoming movie trailer. They're showing some clips. But then when they showed the same clip again, and I saw the, the second plane hitting the, the, the second tower, that time I realized, oh, my God, it's really happening. It's not a movie trailer. And I could not believe that because I just left New York City a few months before, and New York was my first, kind of like my birthplace in my adopted country. And I was crying. I couldn't believe that. I was shocked when I saw people are jumping from the tower and how people are running away for their life. I could not believe that I was crying and I was shocked that how how people can do this kind of evil act. It was beyond my belief. How did you feel when you found out that the hijackers, uh, they did it um, in the name of, of the faith of, of Islam? Well, that was another shock. That uh, once I heard from the news that a group of misguided Muslims uh, did that. I feel terrible in one hand. On the other hand, I feel afraid because I thought at the time there might be some sorts of backlash against the Muslims, against the immigrants in the U.S. But then I told myself, I didn't do anything wrong. Why should I be afraid? I have no ties with those terrorists. I'm a peace-loving person, came to USA for additional higher education, 
and I'm respectful to everyone. I do every day my best to learn others and make bridges and get to know them. So why should I be afraid? But it's still, you know, back of my mind, there was a fear that there might be some sorts of backlash against Muslims. Fast forward a few days later. Tell us about that day. While I was uh, working at the gas station, especially after 9-11, many times angry customers tried to have a conversation with me. They were, you know, uh, saying bad things about Muslims. Sometimes they were kind of like just angry. And I tried not to have any conversation with them. And rather, I stayed respectful to them because I understand their anger. I understand where they're coming from. Um, But still, I tried not to engage uh, with any kind of hot conversation. And uh, September 16th, in the Dallas Morning News, I saw the headline on the first page. A Muslim man was shot and killed, not too far from our gas station. And nobody knows who killed him. And um, FBI was investigating that case. I felt very afraid. And after that, three nights in a row, I saw in my dream I was being shot in that gas station. And I and I told my owner that this is what I saw and I'm very afraid. And he said, Race, you are you're a cool guy. You don't say anything bad to others. Just stay low, don't get in kind of um, conversation that that you know that leads to an argument. Just stay low. But still I was afraid. And then September twenty first, two thousand one, Friday it was raining since uh, morning cats and dogs. Business was pretty slow. Around uh, 12.30 p.m., I saw a customer was walking toward the gas station wearing bandana, sunglasses, baseball cap, and um, holding a double-barrel shotgun uh, on his waist. As soon as he walked in, I placed all the money on the, on the counter. I said, sir, here is all the money. Take it, but please do not shoot me. He was not looking at the money, though. He was looking at me. And I I felt a cold air flow through my spine. Why he's not looking at the money? Why he's not taking and leaving the store right now? Why he's looking at me? And then he mumbled a question. Where are you from? And as soon as he asked me that question, I was I panicked. And I said, excuse me? And as soon as I said, excuse me, he pulled the trigger from four to five feet away. I felt it first like a million bees stinging my face. And then I heard the explosion, a big sound. I looked down to the floor and I saw blood was pouring like an open faucet from the right side of my head. I placed both hands on my head, thinking I had to keep my brain from spilling out. And I remember myself screaming, Mom, top of my voice. And then I look left and saw gunman was still standing and looking at me. And I thought, if I don't pretend I'm dying, he would shoot me again. I fell down on the floor, and after a few seconds, he left. I grabbed the phone to dial 911, but I was shaking so badly, and I was so afraid I could not dial 911. And I ran to the barbershop next door. Three men inside looked at me in horror and scrambled to escape out back. And I grabbed one of them and I screamed, I'm dying. I don't want to die today. Please do not leave. Please call 911. 
And while one of them called 911, I caught myself in the mirror. And the image reflecting back at me was gruesome, was something like coming straight out of a horror movie. And I couldn't believe that was my face. A few minutes earlier, I had been a smiling, healthy young man. And in the instant it takes to pull the trigger, I had become disfigured. I was bleeding badly. I was fighting to stay awake. I was fighting to stay alive. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we reflect on 9-11. It's been 15 years since the terrorist attacks. Right now I'm speaking to Race Bouillon about how that day affected the rest of his life. So you were taken to a hospital. I was running around in the parking lot and I uh, was lucky. Ambulance arrived within a few minutes and uh, as soon as I saw the ambulance, I started running towards it, taking off my shirts and my shoes off and... Uh, on the way to the hospital, my mouth was moving like a machine. I was reciting verses from the Holy Quran that I memorized in my childhood. And, um, and at that time, my images of my mother, my father, my siblings, and my fiancé appeared before my eyes, one after another one, and then a graveyard. And I felt extremely afraid that maybe my time is up, and that's why I'm seeing their beautiful faces. And maybe at any point... I'll I'll leave this world. I was crying. I was reciting at the same time, and I was asking God that please give me a chance to live. And I promise I would do good things with my life. I would dedicate my life for others, especially for the poor, the needy, and the deprived. And finally, after five hours, I was shot. I passed out, and I was put on life support in the hospital. How long were you in the hospital? You'll not believe, just one day. The, the hospital, which was private and expensive, and I had no health insurance. So they discharged me next day morning and uh, told me uh, to arrange my follow-up medical treatment. So the second part of my American nightmare just began. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear more of Race's story, including details about the man who tried to kill him. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're reflecting on the 15th anniversary of 9-11. Right now we're bringing you the story of Race Bouillon. He was one of several men targeted in hate crimes after the terrorist attacks. Bouillon was shot September 21, 2001 in Dallas, Texas by an American who wanted revenge for the 9-11 attacks. I know, I know what I did was at the spur, spur of the moment it was wrong. But, you know, I did what a lot of Americans wanted to do. The man who shot you was Mark Stroman, and he called himself the Arab Slayer. Uh, you weren't the only one he shot. You referenced a, a shooting where a man from South Asian descent died on September 16th, and after he shot you, he went and did it again. Right. He shot and killed uh, Wakar Hassan from Pakistan on September 15th. He shot me in the face on September 21st, and then he killed uh, a man from India named, named Vasudev Patel on October the 4th, and after that he was arrested. And after his arrest, uh, he voluntarily told the news media that, that he had been hunting Arabs, and what he did, most Americans wanted to do, but didn't have the guts. He claimed 
He was a true American. He was a patriot, and he should be given medal for his action. So the irony of his hate crimes is he was targeting Middle Eastern people, and he shot three South Asians. Exactly. I mean, he was hunting for Arabs, but none of his victims were from Middle East. So while this was all going on, you're trying to recover and survive. I mean, you were a new immigrant. Uh, your family was not here. How did you go about recovering from being shot in the face with a shotgun? This shooting incident uh, changed my my entire life. Um, it, it put me through a lot of mental, psychological, financial, and physical uh, disaster, one after another one. I was told by my doctors that I should not be, I should not fly until all the medical treatments are completed. Uh, otherwise, I might lose my eye. What happened as a result of the shooting, I received more than 38 pellets on my face. Two of them went through my right eye. So doctor advised me not to fly. Uh, um, otherwise, I'll lose my eye for forever. And um, I lost uh, home. I lost my job. Uh, my face was peppered with bullet fragments, and uh, I lost a tooth, which was thankfully replaced later on. At some point, my fiancé had to move on with her own life. I lost a great deal, but I gained more than $60,000 in medical bills. But I never gave up. I did not lose my hope, my dream, and my faith in God. In the military school that I attended back home taught me not to give up. If I ever wanted to be successful and impactful, I did not learn how to give up. So, uh, and I was taught also that, that if I ever fall while pursuing my dream, I should get right back up if I want to be successful, impactful. So instead of hating America, instead of going back uh, to my birth country, I stayed back because I always believed that Whatever happens, happens for good. And every, in, in every negative thing, there is something positive. And I wanted to find the positive that why God gave me a second chance to live. He could have taken my life that day, but he gave me a chance. But if I, if I go back to my birth country, I will never be able to find out that, that, that uh, reason. So I stayed back, and um, a Christian doctor performed eye surgeries before he had any assurance how he'd be paid in the future, a Muslim man gave me scholarship to go back to school. A, a Bangladeshi man uh, gave me shelter. And I was able to go back to school. At the same time, I developed some sorts of fear that if I go outside, somebody will kill me. And that fear actually killed me mentally and psychologically. And I told myself, I cannot live like that. I have to get out of this fear. I have to do something. Merely praying to God is not going to help. Yes, I'm praying. Prayer is powerful, but I have to do something. So then I started looking for a job in a safe environment where nobody will come and shoot me in the face again. And I found that restaurant is a good place to work. So I started working as a waiter at a restaurant. And that restaurant job helped me a lot to overcome the fear. It helped me to learn the culture. It helped me to... to uh, polish my people's skill, and it also helped me to improve, uh, improve me in many ways uh, in, in learning about the culture, about the language, about people, improving people's skill. So that's how I, I slowly started building up my life in this great country, and that's, how, that's what I did. It was hard, but I did the right thing going back to school, 
and also helping myself to get out of the fear. Mark Stroman was found guilty of capital murder. Was it in 2002? That was in 2002. He was sentenced to die in Texas, a state known for carrying out its death penalty. At the time when you heard about his punishment, how did you feel? I was in the courtroom when uh, he was given death sentence, even though I didn't want to go and testify because I was so afraid to go to the courtroom, but then I had no other, I had no choice. So I went to the court and I testified. My duty was to identify him in the court, that he was the man who shot me in the face. So when the verdict was given, I I wasn't actually thinking about the verdict. I wasn't actually thinking about the uh, about Mark Stroman. I was thinking about my life, that I came to U.S. in my dream country, and my life is completely destroyed. How can I rebuild this life in this great nation, in this great country? This country is full of tools, full of opportunities. And um, I didn't want to look like a loser in the future, that I, I left my Air Force carrier back home and went to U.S., and then I came back uh, with an empty hand, with a lot of fear, anxiety, hate. So I wasn't paying any, any attention at that time, or that I was looking uh, into myself, that how can I rebuild my life? Eventually, you did start thinking about Mark Stroman. Can you take us through that journey? Right. Uh, after he was given death, death penalty, um, I went through a healing process where I grew mentally, psychologically, uh, emotionally, and um, in 2009, I went to pilgrimage to Mecca with my mother. And it was there I deeply thought about that hate and revenge may bring temporary satisfaction, but they never bring peace or solution to any situation. They only bring more disaster and, and misery. I thought about my shooter, Mark Stroman, that he has been sitting on a death row waiting to die for the last nine years. And... Uh, I realized that by killing him, we would simply lose a human life without dealing with the root cause. But if he was given a chance, he might become a better person. And by killing him, all the pain and suffering I went through is not going to go away from my life. I looked at him as a human being. I looked at him as a victim as well. And I thought, yes, I forgave him, but that's not, that's not enough. My forgiveness is not doing anything good to him, to society. I have to step up. I need to do the right thing, save his life, and give him a chance to become a better human being. And I was inspired by my faith, my upbringing. And there is a verse in the Quran, chapter 5, uh, verses 32. It says, taking a human life is like taking the entire mankind. And saving a human life is like saving the entire mankind. So pilgrimage was the turning point for me, and I came back as a changed person. And I launched an international campaign to save my attacker's life. What was the reaction? Well, I was uh, really uh, extremely shocked in a, in a very positive way that the amount of support, amount of um, positive energy uh, I felt around me at the time. People from all different walks of life, Hindus, Christians, Jews, Muslim, Muslims, atheists, they all came together to support my campaign. And when Mark Stroman heard that one of his victims was running a campaign to save his life while he was getting ready to be executed because he knew his execution date was fixed, July 20th. He couldn't believe that. He was reduced to tears. He wrote a long letter to me. He thanked the entire Muslim community. He thanked me, and he, at some point he, he said he loved me, and he called me his brother. 
You brought a copy of that letter with you. Could you read a portion of what Mark Stroman wrote to you? I'd be very happy to read uh, at least a couple of paragraphs from this letter uh, dated June 14, 2011 from death row. Uh, in one paragraph, he said, My stepfather embedded some lessons I should have never learned. It has taken me for too long to unlearn some of them, and I'm still working on some of them. I don't know who your parents were, but it is obvious they are wonderful people to lead you to act this way to someone you have every right to hate. And the last paragraph, he said that my whole life I have believed hope was like a handful of rain. But over the last few weeks, you have given me more hope than I have possessed in all my years of life. Once again, let me thank you for all you have done and are going to do. With deep respect, Mark Stroman. What was your reaction when you read that letter? I was crying. I read this letter around 1 a.m. because I wanted to read it paying full attention. So that's what I chose to read uh, in the early morning. And uh, my eyes were full of tears. And uh, I couldn't believe that uh, we came from two different worlds. And the way I was raised, if he was raised in a loving, caring family, maybe he, he would not end up in death row. I feel extremely empathized for him. He had other victims. You felt that you could forgive him and launch this campaign to see if, if Texas would spare his life. But he, you know, his actions affected uh, two other families whose loved ones died. Um, they affected his children. Did he ever apologize? Well, he did. Um, and I was very respectful to the other victims' families as well because I wanted to make sure that before I, be, I go into public launching this campaign, uh, I, I, should have, I should talk to the other families as well and make sure that we're on the same page. So I talked to them. It took little time because it was a very emotional conversation with them because they lost their loved ones. The, the widows lost their husband. The kids lost their fathers. Uh, but ultimately, um, both the victim families, they forgave Mark Stroman. And when Mark Stroman heard that, that not only just me, but the other victims forgave him as well, he wrote letters to them. But he gave those letters to me first. He said, Race, I want you to read it first. And if you feel that these letters are not causing any kind of stress for them, please pass it to them. So I feel very much respected that he trusted me with his letters and I read those letters, beautifully written. He asked for apology. He asked for forgiveness. And I was able to hand-deliver those letters to the other victim families. Your story um, was written in the book, uh, The True American. Um, I was able to read that book, and people who knew Mark Stroman said that he was a con man. And they believe that he conned people to the very last breath that he took. Do you feel like you were conned by him? Definitely not, because my faith taught me that we are supposed to believe what people say. Also, a person who is going to be executed within a few days or a few weeks or in a couple of months, how that person can still be a con man, whereas he was preparing himself to be executed, he never asked for anything from me to do, some, to do anything for him to save his life. And when I talked to him over the phone, when I saw his video message to me, I never thought that he was trying to be, you know, uh, a con man or he was doing everything just for the sake of 
getting a second chance. I truly believe he was changed and uh, he became a better person at the end of his life. Ultimately, your legal fight to spare Mark Stroman failed, and he was executed by lethal injection by the state of Texas July 21st, 2011? Right. He reportedly said that right before being put to death, um, his last words were, quote, hate is going on in this world and it has to stop. Hate causes a lifetime of pain. So you felt like you reached him. I strongly believe that those were his last words right before he was executed. And he also, uh, in a video message, he told me that if I cannot make it, please travel the world and tell and let the world know that how wrong I was. I hated Muslims. I stereotyped all the Muslims. At that time, all Americans, we were angry, and we were saying, let's go and get them. But we didn't know who to get. So I, he said, I want you to go and tell the world, uphold human rights, human dignity, work for peace, work for justice. And this is the same human being who killed innocent human beings 10 years back. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Race Buyan. He's a Bangladeshi immigrant, now a U.S. citizen. A hate crime uh, in 2001, but just a few days after 9-11, almost took his life. He went on to ask the state of Texas to grant his uh, almost killer, uh, Mark Stroman, life without parole? Clemency? Right. I mean, lower, lower his sentence so that at least we can save the life. And then you went on to to continue the work. It wasn't just to spare Stroman's life. Tell us about your organization. Well, uh, after Mark Stroman was executed, um, the the tremendous amount of uh, positive support and energy I was able to gather during the campaign, I turned that into a nonprofit called World Without Hate. And besides working in IT full-time, I dedicated much of my time to prevent hate crimes, uh, Redicate hate and violence uh, by preaching the value of forgiveness and mercy, by empowering people that we should take time to get to know the other, especially those who are especially those who are different from us. And instead of stereotyping, we should be taking time to learn one another, rather stereotypes that we that our society uh, labels and put on us. So I, I founded this organization in 2011, and um, I share my story as a launching pad to inspire people to find ways to share their unique stories and um, to, to build bridges and also to work together to end the cycle of hate and violence that is spreading in our society as a cancer. It's 2016. We're uh, in the middle of a, a very heated presidential election. Um, you're obviously familiar with some of the comments uh, that Donald Trump has made about Muslims, about other people. I mean, how do you feel when you hear that kind of rhetoric in a time when, you know, you preach that there should not be hateful speech and stereotyping? This is very unfortunate that uh, we are hearing this kind of rhetoric, um, hate-filled speech and comments in 2016. I never even imagined that we will live in a world, we'll live in a time where we are so much well-connected through all the technology, but still there is so much hate, ignorance in our society. And it's very unfortunate. It breaks my heart that, that people are dying on the street. People are getting discriminated. Uh, people are being tortured. Uh, they lose, they're, they're not able to practice their civil and human rights 
and duties because of this hateful rhetoric and speeches. But still, there is a hope because people can change. If my shooter, who can change in death row, I think we all can change. I never give up hope on people. Uh, Sometimes people spread hate, talk bad about others, spread fear and ignorance. Uh, there are a couple of reasons. Either there is a material benefit, maybe uh, name and fame involved, or sometimes it's purely ignorance. That's what I'm seeing right now in our society. There's a lot of disconnect, and there is a uh, fear that is coming from ignorance. But that can be that can be overcome if we work together, because there is nothing that Americans cannot fix. Together, we can overcome the fear and the hatred and the violence is spreading in our society. We can we can overcome this, and together we can build a stronger more prosperous and accepting country. What's your message to Donald Trump? Well, while I respect Mr. Trump for obtaining um, the nomination of uh, GOP uh, president, I urge him to, to take time to learn about the minorities and the immigrants. And uh, I urge him to stop spreading the fear and, and then the hatred it is not healthy. It is not helping our country. It is not helping our society in any way. I also urge him to stop uh, stop putting Americans against one another because by keeping us divided, we cannot build a stronger country. So it is my earnest request, Mr. Trump, that please support everyone, even the one do not support you. Lead everyone, and please do not divide an already divided country lead everyone, respect humanity, respect human rights and dignity. We're speaking with you, Race, uh, just a, a few days before the 15th anniversary of 9-11. And while many of us mark the year, each year um, since that day, there are some people that have um, felt that impact greatly. Uh, the families of those who died on 9-11, uh, the, the families of service members who fought and died in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, uh, people like yourself who were targeted uh, because right. of that day. A world without hate, it sounds like a very noble cause. But, you know, how likely are we uh, to see that kind of world, uh, especially as, you know, we look at more and more of these um, isolated terrorist attacks happening around the world, misguided Muslims, as you said uh, previously, but it keeps happening. How do we not stereotype and move past that? One thing I always believe, if you can imagine it, you can do it. I imagined a world without hate, and it's absolutely possible. We just need to work together. And instead of living in fear of the other, we should come forward, get to know the other, and we should ask ourselves, what am I afraid of and what I have done so far to overcome that? And all this change starts from within. And the change we want to see in the world, we should be the change first. Then the world we're looking about, we are, we're talking about is possible. Merely blaming, pointing fingers is not going to help us. We need to come forward as a nation, as one country, as a society. We should include everyone to build that country, to build that world. You mentioned uh, ending that cycle of hate. Um, you reached out to Stroman's children after he was executed. How right. have you stayed in their lives, and what was their response to you? Oh, you don't believe. Um, I received an email from Mark's children uh, right after Mark was executed. 
that they wanted to meet me. And I said, absolutely, I'll be more than happy to do that. And I met them, and uh, the daughter asked me, can I touch you? Because I want to feel that you are a human being. And I said, how about if I give you a hug? And that girl started crying right on the spot. She said that I never even believed that you would come even to meet us. Now I'm giving you a hug. And she was crying. And uh, she said, I'm so sorry what my father did to you. And I told her, look, you lost your father, but you got an uncle. If there's anything I can, I can do to help, to support, I'm always there. I reached out to them many times. I tried my best to help them by giving guidance uh, and also financially uh, some help. Mark's son came out of prison after eight years of serving for an armed robbery case in 2013. And he reached out to me. He sent me a long Facebook message full of thanks, um, uh, thank you note. And I went to see him in a hospital. And um, after that, he was charged again uh, for possession of four, less than four ounces of crack. And now he, he was facing 20 years. And he and his girlfriend reached out to me for help. And I did my best to, to, to fight the case, but uh, it was a very uphill battle. So he took the plea for 14 years with the hope that when he will be eligible for parole, I would be going to the parole hearing and in the meantime show support. And that's what I'm preparing right now. Last week, his girlfriend uh, sent me a Facebook message and, and asked me to write a letter to the parole board. And uh, right now I'm working on that. And I promised him if I stay alive, I will come to your parole hearing. People hearing your story, they probably think it's unbelievable, right, that you would forgive, again, somebody who tried to kill you. You're trying to support his, his children uh, that he left behind. It's not easy to forgive. Absolutely. But if somebody were listening right now and there might be someone in their life that they want to forgive, I mean, what would you tell them? I would say forgiveness is it, it helps both, not only the perpetrator. It also helps the victim because... After you were hard, you were sad, or maybe you were depressed, you were angry, the freedom, the happiness you had before that, somebody's controlling that freedom, that happiness. So by forgiving, you are taking that control back to you. But that doesn't mean the perpetrator is off the hook. The justice can still take place, but you have the right to feel happy. You have the right to be free. You have the right to enjoy your life. So forgive and move on. If you don't want to go back and reconnect, still good. But if you can forgive and forget and mend, that is the highest level of forgiveness. But I'm not asking everyone to go that level. But what I am asking, that forgiveness will benefit you as well. Move on. Enjoy your life with your loved ones. Enjoy the blue sky. Enjoy the, the birds chirping in the morning. Enjoy the smell of the beautiful flowers around you. You've had a pretty remarkable year. You were invited to the White House. You were recently married to a, a Connecticut native, a lovely woman by the name of Jessica. Um, did you ever see yourself here today? One thing I always believe that doing the right thing will open a lot of unimaginable opportunity for you. And I tried my best to stay on the right side. I tried my best to be on the moral high ground. And I believe as a result of all these things, the White House door was open for me. I received a letter from President and um, visited the State Department White House several times, being invited to join their meetings, and also in your studio today. I mean, 
if I remained angry, sad, and depressed and went back to my birth country, hating America, I would never be able to experience what I'm experiencing, marrying a beautiful woman from your estate, from Connecticut, Middlefield, and now doing all these great works. I think it all paid at the end, being on the right side, being on the moral high ground. Reis Buyan, thank you so much for speaking with us. It's a great honor to be in your show. Thank you. Reis Buyan's organization is called World Without Hate. More info and video of our interview can be found at wmpr.org slash where we live. When we come back, we speak with a New Canaan resident and mother who lost her son on 9-11 15 years ago. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Mary Fetchett of New Canaan, Connecticut, lost her son Brad on 9-11. He was the eldest of three sons. Fifteen years later, Mary is still working on behalf of the many 9-11 families. Mary Fetchett, welcome to where we live. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So you live in New Canaan, and you lost your son Brad on 9-11 in 2001. Uh, First off, we're very sorry for your loss. Oh, thank you. Tell us about your son Brad. Uh, Brad was 24, and he was an equity trader on the 89th floor of the South Tower. Um, He grew up in New Canaan and attended New Canaan High School and went on to Bucknell. And so uh, his um, job at KBW was his first job uh, just out of college. Can you take us back to that day when when you found out that he had passed? Well, I was working, I was a um, social worker working in an outpatient mental health clinic in Milford uh, at the time, and um, I received a call from my husband. Brad had contacted Frank uh, just to let him know that he was okay, uh, to reassure him that uh, the first tower had been hit, um, but they expected to be at work uh, all day, uh, but he was uh, frightened. Uh, because he had seen uh, people falling from the 90th floor, as he said, all the way down. And so um, uh, when Frank called, I uh, ended the session with a client and walked into an adjoining building because I knew they had a TV there. And as I walked into the room, uh, I saw the plane fly into the South Tower, which was the building that, Brad was working, and and um, so uh, some of my colleagues drove me home, and uh, you know it was a really beautiful uh, day that day uh, here in the Northeast, um, blue sky, you know, without a cloud in it, and there was this sort of dead silence um, after that event. I think in many ways, you know, our country and the world stood still. Um, you know, just shocked that anything like that could happen here in the United States. You know, our friends and neighbors and family uh, were a great support to us in those early days. It's hard to believe that it has been 15 years. Um, How will you be marking um, the 15th anniversary of those attacks and and the day you lost Brad? Well, uh, my response to the loss of uh, our son Brad was to start a nonprofit organization. Uh, as I mentioned, I was a clinical social worker at the time, and um, and so I started. I reached out to the families in Connecticut and started 
holding uh, meetings in our weekly meetings in our home. And uh, as a result, uh, we now have two offices uh, and about 18,000 uh, individuals that we're in touch with. And we provide uh, information and support services. Uh, we worked on uh, the Living Memorial to uh, commemorate the, those that had died. Um, and then we also worked in public policy. We were very um, struck by the fact of the systemic failures that the government had uh, really in protecting our country. And so it was through the efforts of a small group of family members uh, traveling back and forth to Washington for many years, uh, both to push for the creation of the 9-11 Commission and then to support the reforms. So there was a lot of advocacy year, um, advocacy work rather in the years um, since 9/11, but just within that month, you helped create that organization, um, Voices of September 11th. Where did you find the strength um, in your grief process to to reach out to others? Well, it was really through those early meetings in our home. Um, Beverly Eckert, um, who has since passed away, she died in the um, uh, airline. Um, crash in Buffalo, I think it was five or six years ago. Um, but I met Beverly uh, uh, when we had those first meetings in our home, and we started traveling into New York and we met uh, other family members. It's very challenging because people didn't use the Internet like they do today. And so uh, we'd actually go into meetings and then come back and distribute the information uh, to the families uh, in Connecticut, many of them were young widows and they had small children and they really didn't have uh, the time nor the effort to go in. I have uh, two surviving children. One was 13 and one was 20 at the time. Uh, so we were much uh, more able to, to make the trips uh, into New York and Washington, D.C. We had such a bond with other family members. And you know, the more information that we learned, the more we became involved helping to shape what the museum has become today, uh, you know, and we also worked with the medical examiner to standardize um, the process, notification process that they had for families that continue today. What we're doing now as well as we're conducting research, we just completed, you know, a very cutting-edge research project looking at the long-term needs of uh, the 9-11 families. And we're also creating best practices. Uh, we went to Oklahoma City, Virginia Tech, Northern Illinois University, and Tucson back in uh, 2011 through 2013 and created a resource kit where communities can really understand, you know, what resources they need and how they can better provide services, not just to the victims' families, but also to the responders and the survivors uh, that live in the community. For our listeners who are hearing your story, uh, maybe for the first time, um, again, you lost your son, Brad, um, on 9-11-2001. You know, we know that trauma happens every day, and um, oftentimes when a death happens, you know, we reach out immediately. But then, you know, life goes on, and what is your advice to people of how they can help 
um, their community members, their neighbors who have lost somebody um, beyond the initial, you know, few days after that loss? You know, I found my family and friends were very supportive, but also the community of, of people that are directly impacted. We, we, I, I say we're, we're like a patchwork quilt. Uh, we uh, speak a certain language and understand uh, the journey that people have been on for the last uh, 15 years. Um, and I think to, to give other people hope uh, that you too can go through a trauma and you too can uh, make a difference in the life of others. So, uh, so I think there is some hope in that. But there, you also do have to recognize there are many people that are still struggling. So I think that people do have to recognize when you suffer a loss and a trauma that it's a lifelong journey and there's going to be peaks and valleys. But uh, to be a good listener, to be able to provide support, to be able to recognize and anticipate their needs, that's what's uh, very helpful. Mary Fetchett is a New Canaan resident and founding director of Voices of September 11th. Her son, Brad Fetchett, worked in the World Trade Center and was killed in the attacks on September 11th, 2001. Mary, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. She'll be joining others in New Canaan this Monday, September 12th, for an event co-hosted by Voices of September 11th and Grace Farms Foundation to commemorate the 15th anniversary of September 11th. We'll have more on our website at wmpr.org slash where we live. Today's show was produced by Lydia Brown. Special thanks to WMPR's digital reporter, Ryan Karen King. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.